So we are um, in the Gospel of John, as Bree have just read to you our text for the day, rather long text, and uh, the chapter 6, the chapter that we're in, is a long chapter. So we've seen in the beginning of it, just as a reminder, that Jesus feeds 5,000 people with two fish and some, a little bit of bread. And somehow, he's able to miraculously feed all of those people. Then those people follow him across the sea over to Capernaum. And it is there that the interaction that we see in the text this morning is happening. And it's an interesting thing. There's two primary ideas that I think kind of roll out of this text. And they're not obvious. The first one that I'm going to talk about and come back to in the end is how the sovereignty of God is playing out in what's happening here and how that becomes a sanctuary for our soul as believers in Christ. The sovereignty of God is a place of refuge. It is a place of safety. It's a sanctuary for our soul. The second thing that I think comes out of the text that you may find challenging this morning, and at least, if not challenging, perhaps interesting, is this. I think the American church has a disease. I think the disease is revealed in our text. If you just do a cursory Google on the American church and is it dying, what you're going to find is that the American church is dying not by the hundreds, but by the thousands. Not just people, but churches themselves are dying by the thousands. There is a disease that is happening to American Christianity, and I think that there are some diagnostic things in our text that's going to help you understand where the disease may be coming from. And so, I said, I believe the main point in John 6 is the sovereignty of God and His control, even when it seems to the naked eye. If you just look at this text, it starts with about 5,000 people following Jesus because they've seen him do miracles. There's, there's miracles, there's bread, there's food, there's temporary relief for what they need, and so they're following him. And they follow him across the sea. And it is interesting because the scene reveals these thousands that are looking for something from this Messiah or this miracle worker. And in the end of the chapter, we've gone from 5,000 and something people, quite frankly, to 11. Honestly, if you just look at the chapter, Andres, uh, I'm going to see if I can get his name right, Kostenberger, he's a seminary professor a senior research professor, and his focus is on the Gospel of John. In his his commentary, 
when he writes about what we're reading and what we've just read, chapter 6, he says, in quote, chapter 6 ends on a note of failure that we're we're going from 5,000 down to 11. Chapter 6, he says, ends on a note of failure. Is this true? The Bible says that he never sleeps and he never slumbers. His ways are not our ways. That he is infinitely wise. He's infinitely powerful. He is infinitely good. And he is infinitely loving. So in John 6, why is it that with all this infinite stuff, it goes from 5,000 to 11. There's a rub here. There's a tension. Many walk away, including, if you look at the text, even some followers, or the word is disciples. And then even one in the inner circle, so the inner circle being the 12 apostles, even one of them, named Judas, walks away And so it really begins to feel like failure. From the standpoint of beginning to end, the resistance to Jesus continues to grow as the chapter goes further. Stronger and stronger and stronger until almost everyone abandons him. It looks like the resistance is winning. Honestly, it just looks like failure. Look with me, though, in your Bibles, and I'm I'm doing something different. I want you to know that on the outset. I usually use a lot of slides, but philosophically, I've been wrestling with it, and one of the reasons I'm not using them is because I want you, our people, to be people of the book. If I show you the slides, you can just look up there. There are Bibles in the pews. I just want to encourage you in the future, bring your Bibles. I want us to be people that, that know the Word of God. We know how to turn to it. We know how to look into it. We know how to study it for ourselves. We're not dependent every Sunday on a pastor just to teach it, though I should be teaching it faithfully. But you should be studying it. You should know how to study it. And so I'm not going to use the slides. We're going to look, though, at John 6, 51 through 56. Now, I also will say as a disclaimer... I have to put my glasses on to read my Bible, so I write and type my notes in 18 font so that I can read from here. So I'm actually reading the Bible, I'm just reading it where I can read it, all right? So look with me at John 6, 51 through 56. This is what it says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides, that's a key word here, abides in me, and I abide in him. Now, I took a liberty. It says, and I in him, but he's saying, I abide in him. So John 6, Jesus is saying, come and eat my flesh and drink my blood. He's saying he is the food that satisfies the soul. Not only does the food of him satisfy the soul, but he says it gives eternal life. So it's not just satisfying and feeling better about yourself. It's something far, far more. It's giving eternal life. But we know, even though the Jews at that moment did not see it this way, Jesus isn't talking about a literal, eat my flesh, come chop me up in small pieces and take you a bite, or cut me and get some blood and drink it. That's not what he's saying. It's not literal. It's spiritual. And then in verse 56, look in there at verse 56. He says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So this drinking and this eating causes this union to happen between the Christian and Jesus himself. That's the way that we have eternal life. When we feed on Jesus in a spiritual sense, when we have union with him, we have eternal life. Now, I'm going to say it a different way that might help. I think I may have said this a year and a half ago, but I think at this point, this illustration really can help make this make sense because we're talking about something kind of weird here. Let's say that, hypothetically, I could empty my body of my soul. What I mean is my soul, I'm going to use Michael because he's on the front row. My soul could leave my body and go into Michael's body. Now, at that point, my body would be empty and yours would be crowded because you'd have two souls. Michael, let's just say, I don't know if he does or doesn't, but let's just say he has absolutely no interest in the Atlanta Falcons football team. Yes, that's what I thought. I, however, do. And if my soul is now in Michael's body, Michael later this week might find himself online Googling an obscure website called Falcoholic. And Falcoholic tells you all about who's hurt, who's not, who's playing, what are the chances of us winning. And Michael might be sitting at the computer and he go, what am I looking at? I've never looked at this website in my life. Why do I have interest in this all of a sudden? And the answer would be, because my soul has left me, and it's in Michael. He's taking on some of my interest. He's taking on some of my desires. Jesus is saying, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, we become one. And what he's really saying is my Holy Spirit 
This is what happens with the Christian. My Holy Spirit comes and enters into you, and therefore, you begin to take on some of the things that I like. You begin to desire truth like you never did before. You begin to read the Bible in a way where it's really interesting to you. I remember reading the Bible just a little bit before I became a Christian and thinking, one, I don't understand anything, and two, this is boring. But after the Holy Spirit entered into my life and I began to read the Bible, the Holy Spirit of God began to help it make sense. And then I began to be interested in the things of God. So the Holy Spirit does this mysterious work for the believer. He comes inside of us and he works. So I'm going to come back to that. That was important for later. So if you look at John 6, just as a overview, it seems that perhaps Jesus is losing. Jesus is losing people. He's losing numbers, which, you know, in the church, nickels and noses, that's important. You got to pay the bill somehow. Jesus is losing momentum. Maybe this new Jesus movement is dying out before it even really gets started. If you just read John 6, If today I was preaching to 5,000 of you and next week there was 11, somebody would probably say, Clint, I think you're doing something wrong. You're not winning here. You're losing. The question that I have, is Jesus losing or is there something else being revealed in John 6? that we don't see as a surface reading? And I would say, yes. And you know why I would say yes? I would say yes because Jesus keeps bringing up one person in the story that it doesn't seem to make sense. You know who he keeps bringing up? In the middle of his losing, he keeps bringing up Judas. In verse 64, I'm going to have to look there because I didn't have it in my notes. Verse 64, he says this. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who do not believe and who it was who would betray him. There he's speaking of Judas. But also, if you look down in verse 70, Jesus answered them. He says, did I not choose you? The 12, and yet one of you is a devil. And then in verse 71, he says, He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. Why bring him up? What's the point of that? I believe that Jesus is bringing Judas up in the midst of failure, in the midst of what looks like to the naked eye Things are going south. He's saying, oh no. I I even picked him. You think here in a few moments, he's going to betray me? But he's doing my bidding. I'm sovereign over all things. I'm the God of the universe. I'm sovereign over Judas. Matter of fact, 
I'm sovereign over Satan himself. I'm working. Believe me. Trust me. I'm working. They're, they're unwittingly doing my bidding for redemptive purposes that I set from the foundation of the world. I've got Judas doing it, and he doesn't even know it. He doesn't even know it. So, God has Satan, like my father, and some of you younger parents are going to think this is unbelievable. My father was a great father. Let me put that out there as a disclaimer. But when I would do something wrong or not pay attention, often he would grab me by the ear in such a way that provoked such pain that he would pull me wherever he wanted me to be and he would bring me around in front of him so that he had my full attention all the while about to yank my ear. That's probably why I had the tumor all these years, um, which I have had. I'm sure it was that. But I know. But he would get my attention. He would pull me around by my ear and make me listen. What I'm saying is this. God has Satan by the ear. He's doing the bidding of God. He, Judas is doing exactly what Jesus wanted him to do. And in our text, where it looks like all's falling apart, no, the plan is really coming together. But here's the issue, and I know this because I live it. Has Satan in your world, in the way that things have been happening for you, has he slipped behind Jesus and started messing things up? Is he covertly foiling the plans that you have? How about, how about you in your life? Does it feel like sometimes things do not go according to plan? On the surface, you're beginning to think, I'm losing here. At face value, it feels that certainly God could not be in control if this has happened. Where do you feel like maybe Satan is foiling the plans of God and you're beginning to lose, you're off track, the plan is not as you would have thought? Let me say this. Just like in our text in John 6, <clears throat> if you're God's, it's not off track. God is in control. He sits on the throne. We may not understand it all. As a matter of fact, most things it feels like as I get older, I don't understand. But what God is saying to you and what God is showing in John 6 is I'm sovereign. Even when it looks like it's falling apart, I'm sovereign. Even when 5,000 people walk away, I'm sovereign. I got this. He says to you as a believer, I got this. Trust me. Trust me. I am in control. I am the God of the universe. Yes, I know it doesn't feel like it. I know it may not look like it, but I am. I am in control. 
Look with me. The disciples had to feel this in John 56 through 59. Jesus is up there speaking to 5,000. He's like, you know, I'm basically saying, I'm God. And they're going, isn't this Mary and Joseph's child? Isn't this the carpenter? And then he's saying, so just come and eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're like, holy smokes, Jesus. Soften up the message a little, would you? We're, we're picking up the social cues, and you're not. These people are looking at you like you're an idiot. You're saying you're equal to God. You're asking them to eat your flesh, drink your blood. And then in John 60, 61, look what they say. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to this? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling, he said, do you take offense to this? He could have said, ah, you're right, you're right, you're right. Let me back up. It's not really my flesh. I'm saying this in a spiritual way, and you don't have to drink my blood. I didn't mean it like you really just drink my blood. I mean, that's just gross. He didn't do that. He doesn't do that. He doesn't, he doesn't explain all that away. He actually still kind of keeps going down this same vein. And it's, and it's hard for them to hear. So what did he, what he does to do is he says, what if you saw me ascending to where I was before? That's his next line. What if you saw me going up to heaven? Would, you, would that help you believe? And then he says, he answers his own question. It's a rhetorical question. He says, no, you're not going to believe unless the Father grants that you come. That's his answer. You're not going to believe unless the Father grants that you come. Last week, we looked at John 6, and talked about it at length. And it says, nobody comes to the, to the Father, unless, nobody comes to the Son unless the Father draws him, and that word is drags. And here again, he's saying it again. Even if you saw me sitting in heaven, you wouldn't come. You're only going to come if the Father grants it. For by grace you've been saved by faith. And that, not a result of yourself, it's a gift from God. So things feel like they're unraveling in John 6. One possible solution would be to make things a little more digestible if Jesus would have done that. It's hard to grow a movement. It's hard to grow a church. If I stood up here and said, hey, guys, I'm God. Just come and eat of my flesh, drink of my blood. Could you imagine how the Jews heard that? Even though they had heard so much, that would have still been the answer that they had. This is a hard saying. Who can understand this? Jesus' response is, only the Father can grant this. My Father has people that hear his voice. He will overcome their rebellion. He will overcome their blindness. I'll keep saying the truths of the kingdom, and I'll trust that genuine biblical Christianity is going to grow out of that. The alternative is my second point. 
The alternative to doing what Jesus did is, I think, what the American church has done. These are hard sayings. Who can hear them? I think the American church has decided we should soften that up. We should should soften this thing up because who's going to come if we say things like that? So the alternative is to alter the gospel message to make it more appealing to the masses. You know, the truth of the gospel is in simple form, it's this. You and I and the whole world fell in Genesis 3 when Adam fell. You are a sinner. That's the way you're born into the world. I am born in the world a sinner. I have a sin problem. The call for Christians is to trust what Jesus did for your sin problem and as a substitutionary atonement for you, trust Him to come into your life, forgive you of your sins, and be your Savior. But what we do is in stubborn rebellion, we say, no, I don't even believe that Jesus is the Christ. I don't even believe that that church stuff is real. I'll do my own thing. And so we go our own way. But then pastors like me decide to try to help you, and they try to soften it. Like, if you'll come, God will make you wealthy and successful, and he'll give you all the things you want. And so people come to church and they hear that message. It's called the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. And they're like, this is awesome. Man, if, you, if you're a Christian, you get all this stuff in the world. It's a lie from hell. It is not the truth. And I'm going to show you in a moment through the scriptures But the disease, the disease that the American church has gotten has come from people like me who stand up here and preach to God's people and they have heard and bought into the lies. What are some of the lies? One of the things I just said. But one of the biggest problems is many churches have lost a biblical understanding of saving faith, of biblical conversion. Pastors have stopped saying the unpopular things. Do you know why they don't say the unpopular things in the Bible? Because they'll lose their jobs. And they're scared to lose their jobs. But God's men are called to preach the whole counsel of God to God's people. And so, I'm going to say a few things that are the whole counsel of God about this problem. Jesus is not backing down. He is speaking the truth. Pastors need to teach this truth. Let's start with a couple of verses. John 14, 21. I'd love it if you would turn over to John 14, 21. Just a few pages over. I misinterpreted this verse 
for probably 10 years after I became a Christian. And I want to help you see it right because I missed it. John 14, 21 says this. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And listen who asked the next question. Judas, well, it's not, it's not Judas Iscariot. How is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? But let me stop on 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. I believe forever that this verse taught that to really know the Lord, you have to keep his commandments. That's one of the criteria. This is subtle. And I think it's why I missed it for 10 years. I hope you catch this twist. Here's the twist. Remember what I was saying about my spirit going out of my body and into Michael's body, and he would take on some of my desires? What Jesus is saying here is not you've got to prove your love by your acts. He's actually saying you will reveal your love by your acts. In other words, when my Holy Spirit is really in you, it will produce as a natural overflow these good works. You see, the difference is you're going to work for your salvation. You're going to work to prove that you love God. You're going to work to make sure that people see that you're really holy and the other side is, you're just going to do it out of a natural Holy Spirit desire. The Holy Spirit of God has come in and he's changed your nature from one of rebelling, rebelling against God to now you love God. You want to please God. You're not having to prove your love for God. It's just, it's, you want it. You see, many people are out there anywhere in the world that are doing far better works than me. The question is not, how good are your works? There's also the reality that theologically, Satan knows more theology than I'll ever learn in 10 masters of divinities. And he's not a Christian. The difference is a holy wanting that when the Holy Spirit enters into a person, their desires change from the inside out. Where I once wanted to make much of myself, I would have never told people that. I don't even know that I consciously thought it. I just wanted to be the man. I wanted to be somebody. All When the Holy Spirit enters now, my Holy wanting is to point people to Christ and say, He is the ultimate. He should be made much of. Because every echo of beauty and goodness that's in my life comes from Him and Him alone. All the good that is in me is from Him. And so the wants change. 
Not the doing, not the thinking, but the wanting. And that's why if someone walks down an aisle or becomes a member of a church, and this is where I was saying about the disease that has been a, a, a plague on the American church, is that we don't understand biblical conversion. There are thousands of people sitting in churches this morning that do not know God. And the reason is, is they had an experience and they point back to this experience. It might have been 60 years ago. But there's not a wanting to make much of the God of the universe. There's not a treasuring of him that you would go like the, like the parable and sell everything that you have you give up all of it to go over here and buy the field that has the pearl that is Christ because he's worthy and you would rejoice like a child that just got the most incredible toy ever at Christmas and gave away all his other stuff because now he gets to have this incredible toy that he's wanted, 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 and it's incredible. That's it. That's the difference. The true believer in their heart want God. They want God. They don't, they don't get it all right. They sin. I sin. You sin. We mess up. But at the end of the day, the trend of my heart, the trend of the true believer's life is. Oh, God, I want you. I want you more than that. I do. I, I struggle like in Romans 7, and I do the wrong things, but I want you. Mostly, I want you. And our churches are full of people that had an experience, but that's not where they are. And so they go, and they live the rest of their life, and they point back to this time. And here's another way to say it. There's cheap grace. Easy believism, and then there's the ticket. The ticket. The ticket is a very popular belief in American Christianity. You know what the ticket is? The ticket is, oh, I did that back there. I got the ticket. It's in my back pocket. I'm, I'm good to go. When I die, I'll go to heaven. I got the ticket. Jesus is not a ticket. Jesus is a treasure. Jesus is God of the universe. He's not a ticket. If you view him as a ticket, you will not experience eternal life after you die. He is a treasure worth everything. And when we look, look with me at... Uh, Matthew 7, 13 through 14. I want to back up what I've been saying with the Bible because here's the thing, guys. I don't care if I say it all day long. If it isn't in the Bible, don't listen to me. If it isn't in the Bible, it doesn't matter what Clint says. I don't care what position I hold. It's got to be in the Bible. The Bible is the difference. Matthew 7, 13 through 14. 
Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And then right there close by 21 and 23, Matthew 7, 21 and 23. This is more pointed. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So what did he just say? There's going to be a lot of people that say, Lord, Lord. And he's going to say, you never knew me. But the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven, and you'll do the will not to prove that you're his, but because you are his and it's flowing out of your life as a result of that Holy Spirit coming in. So he says, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did I not go to church in your name? Did I not give my tithe in your name? Now, I know I'm taking a liberty with the text here. I'm just making it a little bit more contemporary. And do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You know what the difference is? Remember, you can work. You can do a lot of great works. But inside your soul has the Holy Spirit entered and begun to transform your desires so that you have this holy wanting for God and the things of God. I can do a lot of great things and be lost for all eternity. Some are misled. Some are misinformed. You will do the will of the Father if the Spirit lives in you. If we do not find our desires for holiness to please God, then perhaps we have missed saving faith. And then one last passage, and you don't have to turn there, but Matthew 24, verse 13 says this, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved. You know why he'll be saved? Because he proved he loved God. No, we don't work it. It's because he does love God. It's in him. He will persevere to the end because he truly is a follower of Christ. It's subtle, but it's big. They endure the end. The true children of God finish the race. They will not just start the race through a prayer, but they will finish because God lives in them and through them. Luke 9, 23 through 25, you've probably memorized it, but here it is. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake He is the one who will save it. 
For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses and forfeits himself? We in the church have made the message too soft. Come down, pray, get baptized, become a member. We've got to be careful to teach the cost of discipleship. We've got to be careful to say, do you really understand what's happening here? That you're inviting Christ, the Holy Spirit of God, to come in and transform your life. And if you really mean that, you will be willing, if you really mean that, you'll be willing to sell, to give all of this up and go over here and buy the pearl of great price. When, when God tested Abraham with his son Isaac, it was a test. And you know what the test was? Abraham, will you give up? See, Abraham might say, you might say, I'd give up anything for the Lord. Anything. And this is what God knows, and this is what he did with Abraham and Isaac. This is what he did with the rich young ruler who had a lot of money. He, he picked the one thing that he knew was the most important thing. With Abraham, it was Isaac. With the rich ruler, it was his money. And he said, give that up. And he said, I can't do it. Not, not, Abraham did it. The rich young ruler said he couldn't. Is there something in your life that is more important to you than Christ himself? If whatever that something is, that may be the thing that is keeping you from spending eternity with God, from having a relationship with Christ himself. That one thing. So in the end, and this is the last part. I love this part. Peggy tells me this is one of her favorite parts in all the scripture. But in 66 through 71, it says this. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with them. So Jesus says to the 12, he could have said, hang on, guys. I know I was hard on them. Y'all stay here for a minute. Hey, 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 scratch the eating the flesh thing and the blood thing. I didn't really mean it. Y'all come on back. I'll show you some more miracles. No, this is what he does. He says, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered him. Listen to how he answers him, y'all. I want you, all through John 6, it's all in there. Did I not choose you? Bob came up to me after the sermon last week. It reminded me of John 15, 16. Jesus said, I chose you, you didn't choose me to the disciples. He says, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is the devil? He spoke of Judas, 
many disciples walked away. Do you want to walk away as well? And he says, to whom do we go? To whom do we go? What he's telling them is this. I believe the message is, I'm not going to lose here. It looks like I'm losing, but I'm not going to lose here. I even chose the one that's going to betray me because I'm trying to show you something far deeper than just numerical success. Now, don't get me wrong. Do I want our church to grow? You bet your dollar I want our church to grow. I'm not saying church growth is bad, but what I'm saying is a trust in the sovereignty of God is far greater. Jesus is telling these guys, I got this. I got this. Don't worry about it. I got it. It's going to go forward. The kingdom is going forward. Trust my sovereignty. Even when it seems like everything's falling apart, trust me. Trust me. Trust me. In your life, when it feels like it's just coming apart at the seams, God is saying to you, trust me. I got this. You're mine. I chose you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Trust me. I got this. So, if you do know Christ today, I pray you see the beauty of the gospel. We are all born separated from God, but through the Father's love, He sent His Son that we might not be punished, but have a substitute for our sins. And we can receive his gift of life through trusting in his son. Will you trust him today? And for you, the believer, will you trust him every day? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the message that comes from John 6 that you are sovereignly in control even when it feels like that may not be true. And Father, I pray for your church. I pray that your people would truly know you. They'd understand biblical Christianity, biblical conversion, and what it means to have your Holy Spirit indwell them. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.